Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Uh, the, the big announcement is that the roster is out in the foyer, so please take a look at that if you'd like to serve in some capacity. It's always a blessing to be able to minister to one another and to meet the needs of the body, and uh, so that's going to be going away in, a I think, this week. So Trudy asked that I let you know to take a look at that, and... Uh, you, can, you might see an email coming through about State of Origin, having a little gathering here. So if that interests you, just be on the lookout for that. Still in the planning stages. Uh, and uh, let's turn to Genesis 45, where we'll be going through this chapter. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word that you speak to us, that you're not a God who is fashioned in the likeness of man or that has been made by the hands of man, but you are holy, you are awesome, in you is life, and you give us the words of life. And as we open this word today, Lord, we pray we would feed upon it, that it would nourish our souls, that it would make us fruitful for your kingdom and your glory, because you are awesome. And the light that shines in the heavens with the sun and the moon and the stars, they are just the edges of your ways, for you outshine them all. And you are glorious and awesome in power. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, reveal yourself to each one of us. And corporately, as we open your word, that we would rejoice and celebrate your awesomeness. And that we would learn and grow and be fruitful for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reflecting a bit this week about uh, going to uni. My second semester, I took a Spanish course. I had taken Spanish in high school for two or three years, so I'm like, oh, this is, an, this is a cruise class, easy class. I was confident I could pass, and what I did not expect or predict, that in that class I would meet Laura. We would fall in love, and we would get married. At the time, I couldn't sense any, like, that all my life has been leading to this moment, or how God would use it, or how God had orchestrated our meeting, or the things that we had each gone through. But looking back, I can see his gracious hand guiding us and protecting us and bringing us together. And it's so awesome how God works beyond our, our prediction, our ability to understand, where we're just saying, I want an easy class. And God's like, here, here is a future wife. <laughs> okay, that's not, I was looking for a mark. I wasn't looking for that, but God made it happen. It's like a kid, he, he goes to camp because he was invited. That's all, the only reason. He wanted to hang with his friends. He went because he was invited. But during that camp, has a life-changing encounter with the living God and is born again and, and will be with the Lord and his people for eternity. And it was something that he wasn't looking for. He wasn't even thinking about. He just wanted to hang out and have fun. And yet God had a different plan. He had a better plan. And in the life of Joseph, we see this on full display. From Genesis 37 onward, we followed his life, the things he experienced, how he was sold at the age of 17 to Midianite traders, how he spent 11 years as a slave in the house of Potiphar, a couple years in prison. Then he's promoted to second in command of all Egypt, and he's the right-hand man of Pharaoh after he interpreted his dream. And then God, through him, provided for the whole nation and for the surrounding nations food in a severe famine. And after two years into the famine, his brothers come 
10 of his brothers come into Egypt and they don't recognize him. And J Joseph puts them through a series of tests to see if they were honest men. And they came with the idea of buying food for their survival. That's it. They wanted to get food. But God had a bigger plan to restore their relationship, to save many people alive, to provide for their family for another five years. They just wanted to get through, and they're thinking, well, maybe next year will be a better harvest. But Joseph knew, because God revealed to him, there's yet five more years, and God would provide. God's plans are better than ours. And it's like, when we walk with Jesus, we're on holy ground. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he is, like we have an idea of what we want to accomplish or what we'd love to see, but his plans, wow, so much better, so much grander. Genesis 45, starting in verse one. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him and he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. So they had spent two, over two decades apart. Joseph, he recognized his brothers, though they didn't recognize him, and they, he spent months waiting, patiently testing his brothers, wondering how everyone was going back home and now he dramatically reveals his identity. He was not Zaphnathaneah, like his Egyptian name. He was Joseph. He goes from saying, hey, that old, your old father that we've spoken about, how is he? Your dad. Now he's my father. He reveals himself that he is Joseph, their brother. And this came after uh, Judah's moving speech where he said, let me be a slave instead of Benjamin because it'll break dad's heart. And it says he wept aloud so that the Egyptians, his servants heard it, and the house of Pharaoh heard it. So he was like bawling. It was very loud. And it must have been shocking to his brothers to see this hard case governor just break down crying. They're like, okay, what's going on? And then he's like, I am, and, and until then he had always been using a translator the entire time. He had always spoken through a translator. Now he speaks to them in their language and he says, I am Joseph is my father still alive? He hadn't told them the whole truth about himself and he wanted to make sure they had told him the whole truth about Jacob. And it says like, they could not speak. They could not answer him. This word dismayed in Hebrew, it's to be horrified, terrified, to be out of one's senses. So they were just speechless. They were stunned. They were like, their brains are just trying to catch up with what has just happened. What is going on? The scene reminds me a little bit of when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared in the midst of his disciples. They've locked the door for fear of the Jews and they're all in Jerusalem and Jesus appears and he's like, peace be unto you. And it says they were terrified. They thought he was a spirit. They, they knew he was dead and they're thinking like, Who, what is this that's appeared? But Jesus uh, urged them not to be troubled. He says, touch my hands and feet. Feel me and see that I'm a real person, that I'm here with you. And their terror turned to joy. It says in Luke 24, 41, but while they still not, did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. 
The disciples, they weren't hiding to cover their guilt. They were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid that what happened to Jesus might happen to them. Now, the brothers, Joseph's brothers, they were terrified because of the guilt that they felt intensely. They've spoken about it a couple of times in the presence of Joseph, not knowing he was Joseph. They go, surely God is punishing us. He's, he's bringing to mind our past sin. And they felt guilty that they hadn't listened to their brother. They had sold him. And now here he is, the governor of Egypt, a man of power that they had deeply wronged, who with a word could enslave them, he could incarcerate them, he could kill them. And if Joseph was as angry and bitter over what they had done to him, as they felt guilty about selling him, lying to their father and breaking his heart, they were done. They're just like, oh no, this is Joseph. They were not celebrating that. Genesis 45, 4, and Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Instead of driving his brothers away, he asked them to come close. He's like, come here. And they drew near. And he identified himself. And how does he identify himself? As the one they sold into Egypt. Maybe this is the first time Benjamin had ever heard that. He wasn't with them when he was sold into slavery. But now it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm him. I'm the one you sold into Egypt. And he says this not to guilt them or to shame them, but with the purpose of restoring them. He wasn't trying to make them feel guilty. They were guilty. He wasn't trying to prove a point to them. But he says, don't be angry. Don't be grieved with yourselves for the things that you've done. You sold me, but God sent me here to preserve life. And we've been on both sides of this, haven't we? We've been the ones who have done wrong, and we have had wrong, wrong done to us. We may not have sold someone as a slave, but we have been slaves to grief and bitterness and anger due to what we or someone else did. Are you, the, you might be the kind of person that when you've done something wrong, you're angry at yourself or you're angry at somebody else. Like we have all these different responses where we might want to attack or we might want to withdraw. And we don't always have spiritual insight and faith in God to see any good of what's happened. We try to put a good spin on it, but we, don't, we can't always see it. But Joseph, he's able to forgive his brothers, not because he saw good come out of it, but because of his good God, who is a redeemer, who is a restorer, who has a purpose that overrules any evil that exists, anything that happens to us, because God rules and he redeems. Now, we can make the mistake of living with and justifying hurtful and destructive feelings. And we say, it's right for me to feel this way because the thing I did or the thing that happened to me was wrong. And so I can justify having this destructive feeling 
because I deserve it or they deserve it. Now, the Bible teaches that we can be forgiven, that we need forgiveness from God, and that we need to forgive one another. Two things the Bible never tells us to do is that we need to forgive God as if he could do anything wrong, or that we need to forgive ourselves when all sin is against God. Imagine, you believe that you're born again, God's forgiven you of all your sin, but until you forgive yourself, you're not free? Uh, that puts you in a greater position of power than God who shed his blood so you could be redeemed and reconciled to him. So I need forgiveness from God. He's the one I need forgiveness from. And then God says, forgive one another as I forgive you. That's what Jesus said, on the basis of grace, not on the merit of others or the low probability of them reoffending. It's not about them at all. It's on the basis of God's forgiveness for me. I forgive because he's called me to and he helps me to. Joseph accepted what they did was wicked to him, but the Lord God ruled over his life. He was sold by his brothers, but he was sent by God. And because God was in control of Joseph's life and future, he made all things to work together for good. And he's a man, Joseph, who identified strongest with what God did rather than what someone else did. And that's so important for us that we're not identifying with like, yeah, I'm the one who was sold. I'm the one who was rejected. But we could say, well, I'm the one who's sent. I'm the one who God is using to save. And so it just turns it all. And we're able to look to the Lord in thanksgiving and gratitude because of what he has accomplished by his grace. It's like God overrules the evil to do good. And he says, guys, there's five more years of famine coming. And the amazing thing is he wanted to help his brothers. Verse nine, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near to me. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Joseph was very patient in testing his brothers, wasn't he? Like for months, he's just waiting. He's waiting it out. He has a plan. He's following the Spirit's leading. He concealed his identity, but now it's the time for haste. He's like, hurry up, get home, talk to dad, tell him about the things you've seen. You're eyewitnesses that it is me speaking to you. you you're recognizing the way I speak and who I am and come back with Jacob. And he's already thought about where they should live. He's like, we should, you should live in Goshen. It's a great place for you. And you'll be protected and provided for, for the last five years of this famine. It took a long time, but God caused those tears of sorrow to be changed to tears of joy as he wept over his brothers and they wept over him. And it says that he wept over Benjamin and all his brothers. It's like an outpouring of emotion that I have rarely I don't think I've ever experienced it, nor have I 
witness something like this. Um, one thing that we do see in Joseph is he's never far from tears. Rather than being hardened by what he experienced as someone sold by his family, someone who was imprisoned, wrongfully enslaved, and even as a ruler, it didn't harden him. He still had a soft and tender heart before the Lord and others. And I went through all the references of weeping and tears in scripture, and a vast majority of them are weeping out of sorrow or sadness. But here we see tears of joy, where they are delighted. There's this, this joy to be back together and to have restoration. And really, they are now closer to one another than they were ever before because they didn't like each other before, remember? They hated him. They didn't love him. But now there's this joy that God has brought into their relationship. It's like, we can't change the past, but as children of God, we can be changed and have a joyful future. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 126, starting in verse three. Now this is numbered among one of the songs of ascent. It would be a song that was sung as children of Israel went up to Jerusalem for the annual feasts. And the background of this particular one was God had judged his people. He had punished them for their idolatry. They had broken his laws. They murdered their children. They perverted justice. They oppressed the poor. And because of that, God allowed them to fall prey to Syria and they had wars. The Northern kingdom was destroyed. They fell before the Babylonians. Jerusalem was sacked, the temple destroyed, and they went into captivity for 70 years. I mean, there was a lot of death, destruction, loss of their inheritance, taken from the place where God had placed them and now living in a foreign land. And it seemed too good to be true when God brought them out of Babylon those many years later to rebuild the ruins. But the reality was life was hard. Sometimes we think if God is directing and guiding us, things will just fall into place. They'll just be easy. But it was really hard. You had land that had laid fallow for, for 70 years, not plowed, not planted. You're coming back to a ruin, and this is your life now. And they lamented the state of their fields and their, their walls and the temple, their estrangement from God, their inability to worship him because the temple that they needed was destroyed. Look what it says in Psalm 126.3. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So they have come out of captivity. They said, we're glad. God's done awesome things for us. And then verse five, it holds forth that timeless principle. God's people who sow in tears will reap in joy. There's this picture of them going out with seed for sowing. They have the seed and they're planting it, but they're weeping over it. And even as, so they're weeping, but you only sow if you're looking for a fruitful harvest, right? That's the only reason why you sow. You would not be wasting your time if you don't think it's going to grow. And so you're planting the seed and you're saying, at some point, this is going to grow into grain. This is going to supply the needs of my family and my flocks and herds. 
And as the seed fell that would bear grain in due time, the tears that dropped from their eyes, it would produce joy in the end. That would be the fruit of those tears was joy in the end. They, they didn't know when, they didn't know how, but they're saying we are weeping today, but we will reap joy. And so to God's people weary from weeping, there's a joyful future. You can know there's a joyful future in store for you, even if you can't see it through bleary eyes. Our tears, they don't accomplish anything in themselves, but God, he sees every one of them and he promises a bountiful return of joy in the end. Contrary to how you feel, how things look, we have this assurance from God in whom we trust in this life and in the life to come. Joseph didn't need to wait until the eternal state to have joy. He had joy with his brothers. His brothers didn't have to wait. They had joy with him. They had been restored. And this principle holds true concerning suffering and eternal glory as well. We read that in Romans 8, starting in verse 16. It says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Suffering now, but eternal glory that can never be taken away. So the tears Joseph shed when he was sold and he cried to his brothers, they wouldn't listen to him. They sold him for 20 pieces of silver. The tears he shed in prison, they resulted in tears of joy and being reunited with his brethren with bonds of love they never had previously. Sometimes when we're suffering, we can cast off our only real hope, which is in Christ. It's in the Lord. There's no hope in people changing. There's no hope in, in us trying to work towards our ends. But there is hope in God and what he has planned and purposed. He will accomplish it because he is God. And really, the real miracle to me is not the brothers coming around and going, yeah, we did the wrong thing. We're sorry about that. The real miracle is that Joseph says, brothers, come to me. And he embraced them and he wept over them and he rejoiced to save them and their children. That's the miracle because his heart was totally changed from just broken and ruined and isolated to saying, brothers, come here and weeping over them with joy. And to us who have been, it's like God gives us a new heart to do this. And those who have been hurt by others, those who have been called and answered that call to follow Christ, this is our call to love one another as he loved us, to forgive. Because God's the only one who can redeem our tears for joy, our sorrows for future glory. Pretty awesome, huh? Genesis 45, 16. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart, go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this, take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives, bring your father and come. Also do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. At first the house of Pharaoh heard loud weeping 
And then the report comes that Joseph's brothers have come. Joseph had concealed his true identity from his brothers, and he also hadn't told Pharaoh yet who they were. But now he reveals that. And one thing that's cool, I think is pretty neat about Pharaoh, is he really trusted Joseph. He, when there were people coming to him and saying, we need food, he's like, talk to Joseph. Oh, what do we do? We're starving. Talk to Joseph. But now he's like, Joseph's brothers have come? Cool. Now I'm going to command you. Now he lays it down and he commands Joseph what to do. He's no longer deferring to Joseph to make decisions about what to do. He says, this is what you say to your brothers and to Jacob. Load your animals, go to Canaan, bring back Jacob, your families, and come to me. I'm going to let you live in the best of the land. You're going to eat the fat of the land. And by God's grace, Joseph and his family had favor in the eyes of Pharaoh and his people that they had more offered them than Pharaoh offered his own people. He didn't say, you know, the Egyptians, they all get the best of the land. No, he's like, I'm going to give you the best of the land. It was really neat that the Lord moved Pharaoh to do this. And he commanded that carts, wagons be taken to transport. Now, we go, well, a cart's not very impressive, a bit bumpy, but hey, in 1700 BC, they had wheels, and that was pretty revolutionary for transporting things. So this was like state-of-the-art transport, uh, like rolling out the rolls or the Bentley. It's like this is, these carts were pretty sweet, and uh, there weren't many of them around. And so he's like, you take these carts, and you don't need to bring anything. You could leave everything back in Canaan. You're going to have the best of everything here. So come on. So what a blessing. Verse 21, then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. He's promised them the best of the land, but he sends 10 donkeys loaded with the best of the land just to, just to bless them. So it's the 10 male donkeys carrying the best things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys with bread, grain, bread, and food for Jacob and the family. Joseph, he gifted them with changes of clothing, all his brothers, and he gave Benjamin five with 300 pieces of silver. And uh, having tested his brothers, he wasn't a concerned that they were going to off him or sell him to get his stuff. Like they proved themselves honest men. And when you see that, is there something in you that goes like, that's not fair. That's not right. That doesn't seem just to give more to one than to another. But remember, these were gifts of grace. I'm reminded of the parable Jesus told where some workers toiled all day and others worked only one hour. And the ones who worked an hour, they got to be paid first. And so the ones who work for an hour, they line up. They queue up and they get a denarii, which is the payment for a full day's work. And so the workers who started the day, worked through the heat of the day, they're thinking, well, we're, what are we going to get? Something even better. And then they receive a denarii and they grumbled. They're like, those guys only worked an hour. We worked all day. 
The owner said this in Matthew 20, 13, but he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So he upheld the agreement that he had made with the workers who worked all day. He gave them a fair wage they had agreed upon. And he decided out of his bounty and generosity to give those who only worked an hour the same. Joseph, he was motivated by love to give these gifts, not a contract. And if any of the brothers were upset they didn't receive what Benjamin did, it was due to their own greed, envy, and ingratitude. And I think, how many outfits can you wear at a time? One. It's not very fashionable to wear more than one at once. That would be interesting. But he gave all of them changes of clothing, and he gave Benjamin five. Was it right to resent Joseph for being generous with his own things? When we celebrate the giver over the gift, we choose gratitude. We're humbled to receive honor from the giver, right? Because our value isn't in the gift given. It's in the giver who gives, the generosity of our Lord. And Paul writes that God has chosen people for different roles in the church and the Holy Spirit gives gifts according to his will. And the gift of the Holy Spirit, also called baptism with the Holy Spirit, it's for every Christian. I think about clothes. They can be returned or altered or sold or donated. But all gifts by the Holy Spirit, they are to be received. They're be, to be cultivated by faith in him. And because we value the giver over the gifts, we're pleased with what he gives us without envy. Because we have received a gift from God. And so we use that gift with joy. Joseph sent his brothers away with carts and donkeys and provisions says, see that you're not troubled along the way. So don't quarrel, don't dispute. Don't dispute over who owns the donkeys or what you're gonna do with the carts. Or, and I think about back when I was a kid, um, there used to be discussions and, and strong debates over who sits up front as a passenger. Has anyone experienced that? You call shotgun in Australia, is that something that's done? So you call shotgun because you want to sit up front and you're going to go to war over it because they sat up front last time. And it's just not right that it shouldn't be you this time. So you load the best of Egypt in a famine on the back of 20 donkeys with carts. There's a potential for quarreling and disputing and angling for your own benefit because there's something in us that always says, but what about me? Right? We think about our interests. What do I get out of this? I'll submit to you doing it. You can sit up front now, but I get to sit up front next time, right? We, we justify giving someone the chance because we want the chance too. So we're skilled at putting our own desires and preferences in the center of the universe rather than just being happy to be alive and to have God who loves us and supplies all our needs. And this is always going to be a challenge for us. And sometimes it's even more challenging when we have things than when we don't have things. Not to be troubled or to quarrel along the way when we have brethren. And how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity, united by one spirit, following the good shepherd, 
living to please our God and serving him and one another in love. I like what Philippians 2.3 exhorts us. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out for his only, in, only his own interests, but also for the interests of others. When we esteem Jesus Christ over all as Lord, we can find contentment and esteem others better than ourselves. It's like God supplies all our needs so we can prioritize the needs of others. We can look out for others' interests. That means share or portion. And we can apportion things to them because we care for them. Even if we get nothing in return because of what God has done for us. Genesis 45, 25. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive and he is the governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. They arrived safely back to Canaan with Benjamin, and I am sure that that was Jacob's primary concern, right? He had been very hesitant in fact, initially refused to send Benjamin with them. And when he heard that this caravan was coming, Benjamin was on his mind. Is he there? Is he okay? Oh, good. He's fine, right? There's this like, woo, sigh of relief. But what is this? This, this is not what I was expecting. And, I'm, and then he's floored when his brothers say, oh, yeah, and Joseph's alive. He wasn't thinking about Joseph. He'd not seen Joseph in 20 plus years. But they're like, yeah, Joseph's life. And he's governor of Egypt. He sent all this stuff. His heart skipped a beat. He was stunned. He was like, what? Ironically, years ago when they held up Jacob, Joseph's tunic that was ripped and stained with blood, he immediately assumed the worst. But now they tell him Joseph's alive and he doesn't believe him. He's just like, no way, no way. It seemed too good to be true. But when he saw the carts and he heard the eyewitness reports, his brother's like, yeah, this is what he said. This is what he did. We know it was him. He's like, all right, I believe it. He was convinced my son is still alive. It's like he's saying it just to process and go, yep, wow, he is alive and I'm gonna go see him before I die. So the son who was no more and whom he had not seen for decades, he lived. And the old man, he musters up his strength. He's like, I'm going to go to him. He hadn't been going to go get the food, but he was going to go to go see Joseph. This journey to Egypt, it was a, a walk, a, a very important step of faith for Jacob because he had remained in the land God promised to give him. And to leave that land, he needed the Lord to guide him to do so. By faith in God, Israel's family would leave Canaan and go to Egypt. And by faith in God, ultimately, they would be delivered from Egypt and leave and return. Hundreds of years later. I like how it says his spirit revived. 
So it's like his heart stopped stopping. I don't know if he's like kind of like, whoa, losing his footing or fainting or what exactly that looked like. If he just was totally dazed, or like, Dad, are you still there? But he's like, he, for all that time, he thought he was dead. Now he's like, he is alive and his spirit revived. And he's like, I'm going to go see him. So he's like, if he's alive, I want to be with him. He wasn't content just to know his son was alive. He's like, oh, good. That's great news. Now I can rest easy knowing that Joseph's fine. No, he's like, I want to go to him. I want to see him in person. And there's such a lovely parallel here with Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. It's by faith in him we're born again. And over time, our trouble, our toil, our pain, our weariness from life can crowd the hope of Jesus out of our lives where we lose perspective. We stop trusting that he's actually able to help us in our current situation. And our idea of Jesus can be reduced to a statue or an icon, some sort of picture or a distant memory of Jesus rather than his presence and his power to save who he is. It's like all this time, Joseph was alive and doing well in Egypt. What's Jacob doing? He's heading towards starvation with his family has no idea that Joseph is alive. For decades, Jacob had sowed in tears and now he would have that unexpected harvest of joy. Now the implication for us is since we believe that Jesus lives, we know that he lives, he has ascended to heaven, he's interceding on our behalf, so we ought to seek him. Not just to be content that Jesus is alive and he's gonna save us one day, but he is a savior today and we should be looking for him. We should be listening to him and we can live our lives like Jesus is permanently suffering and dying on the cross. You know, you've seen the images of, of the crucifix with Jesus still there. And it's like, we can live our life like that is an ongoing suffering, never dying, never being buried, never rising, never saving. He's just perpetually hurting. And that's how we can be. We can be perpetually in that place of grief and sorrow and hopelessness like the disciples were for three days until Jesus stood in their midst and he said, peace unto you. And that changed everything. Just like seeing Joseph face to face and he says, brothers, come here. Jesus can be silent as the grave because we haven't sought him We haven't opened the Bible. We haven't expected to hear from him. By his grace, he still speaks. Jesus is the bread of life, but we go hungry. And the living water of the Holy Spirit's promised, but we still thirst. And he gives rest for our souls when our souls are weary and ache, worn thin. It's like Jacob is worrying about Benjamin and mourning for Joseph, and Joseph is alive. Jacob just needed to go to him. And that's what we need to do with Jesus. We need to go to him. We need to seek him. And it's the Christian, not the unbeliever, who needs revival. The unbeliever needs rebirth. We have been born again in Christ. Thus, we need to be revived. We need to be reminded of that Jesus is alive. And that he is speaking, 
we should go and seek his presence to be with him. So turn to Isaiah 57, 15 as we close. Really, like all the scripture, timeless truth from the mouth of God, but so cool that God would invite us to be with him. Our greatest longing to be with God is just a fraction of his desire for us to be with him and him to be with us. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Joseph told his brothers, he's like, tell dad about my glory. Tell him about my glory so Jacob would come. And God, he reveals his glory to us so that we would go to him. We would see how attractive and awesome he is. That he's beyond human reach, infinite in power, perfect in holiness. You can't reach him by effort, and yet he invites us. Who dwells with him? Those who are humble and contrite those he revives, those who are broken in repentance for their sin. It's like he's infinite. We're short-lived. We're finite. And yet he says, who do I dwell with? Those who humble themselves. Those who are broken. We have some plants in front of our house, and sometimes without water, they look a little sad, right? They get a bit droopy. A little bit of water, though, makes a huge difference. They just perk right up. Like, wow. That's what they needed. And by faith in Christ, we know those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Those tears that you shed, and even when your eyes are so dry, you cannot shed them. Know that there is joy in your future in Christ. That is a guarantee. You are assured of that. We fear and serve the living God. Should we Live like God is powerless to help or save when we're with Christ and he's with us. He does more than give us carts. He gives us the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to be his witnesses. He carries us into his presence with joy and he exceeds all expectations. So let's expect a harvest of joy in his time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us yourself for giving us the opportunity and in the invitation to enter into your presence with singing and to rejoice in your holy name. Thank you that we can know you through Jesus, that we can be born again and you revive us, that even when we're like Jacob, who was starting to starve, who was afraid and worried for Benjamin's health and welfare, and that he wondered if he was gonna come home, Lord, you brought him home. And thank you that you will bring us home. And you, you invite us to come to you even now to, fight, to be revived, to have our soul revived, to have our hearts and minds revived, to be just instead of stunned and overwhelmed and, and confused and troubled, that we can rejoice. We can praise and thank you for who you are and what you've done and what you will continue to do, the great future that you have in store for each one of us in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would seize the reality of your presence and your promises, and we wouldn't just 
go after what you give us. We wouldn't just seek the gifts, but we'd seek the giver. And we would be refreshed. We would be revived as we place our faith in you and get up on our feet. You've told us to stand, Lord. Help us to stand, wearing the armor of God, walking in obedience to you, forgiving one another as you forgive us. And thank you, Lord, that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Those who suffer now, they will be glorified. And it's just because of you and what you do. And so, Lord, we rejoice to know you and to proclaim you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.